Let's pray. Father, we indeed pray that uh, our worship of you this morning is a sweet sound in your ears. Lord, indeed, you are holy, you are righteous, and Lord, we are not apart from Christ. And Lord, we thank you for your Son who's imparted righteousness to those who believe. And Father, we stand in awe of the grace and mercy that you lavish on us as believers. Father, thank you for what you're doing at CBF. The ongoing construction is just a testimony, and I love the three crosses because it's clear to everyone that drives by, this is a church that is exalting your name. And may that be the case. Lord, guide us as we go to Second Peter today and journeying into a new book. May the text, as you have promised, not come back void, but may our, our lives be changed because we have encountered your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, turn to Second Peter. I know, if you were joining us before, we've been in First Peter, and, and now we're hitting the second letter. Second Peter. Just this past week, I heard about a fellow who had two tickets to the Super Bowl game tonight. He was so excited, he had spent $6,500 on each ticket, which I'm told isn't much these days. And he, what he didn't realize was that the game would land on the day of his wedding. Bummer. So if you're interested, he's looking for someone to take his place. It will be at the First Baptist Church in Des Moines, Iowa. Her name is Susie, and she'll be wearing a white dress. <laughs> oh, that's awful on so many fronts. Uh, I won't hear the end of it, I'm sure. Knowledge is important, and if he had just known a few things before he bought those tickets, it would have been helpful. And Peter's second epistle is all about knowledge. We're going to talk about that as we go through. First Peter was known as an epistle of grace, Second Peter is known as an epistle or letter about knowledge. Knowledge of knowing Christ and all that that comes with it. It's not just the intellect, though it's certainly going to be harped on in this letter, but also a behavior, a heart issue. In an age where doubt is applauded, the core of the Christian faith is questioned, and traditional values of morality are eroding. This short letter, one that most New Testament scholars will say is the, the most neglected within the New Testament canon, I would argue is extremely relevant to our culture today. What I would like to do is what we've done with the other studies of books. I would like to back up a little bit. We need to know who's who and, and what's going on. What is the context for instance, I was thinking about the Super Bowl. Uh, for many of my European friends, they have no idea what that is. Like, you know, is it just another game? And let alone, who's playing and, and why is that significant? Especially if you're a Bengals fan, right? Ooh. So all of these things, what, what's going into this? And, and, and so who is who and what's taking place? Well, that's still a little bit with this. And if you're following along in your notes, there'll be a quiz at the end. So... Hopefully you, you do take notes. The original language of the book uh, is in Greek. 
as with all the New Testament writings. But it's interesting, when you look at the original of Second Peter, it looks nothing like First Peter. In fact, there are 60 words that are used in Second Peter you won't find anywhere else in the New Testament. An additional almost 30 words only occur one other time in the New Testament. The, the language is, is syntax, the lexical choices, it's far more complex than First Peter. And so some scholars say, ah, we have a different author. I'd argue, no, 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 no. Let's back up for a moment. Second Peter is being written in a, in a very different situation than First Peter. Second Peter, as we're going to see, our writer is facing death. Secondly, I believe the style, the syntax, and choice of words demands close attention. As Peter is staring death in the face, he's got, I have a few words to say you need to hear. And let me maybe fine-tune it just a little bit grammatically, lexically, so that you have to stop and you don't just do a blitzkrieg across the, the letter. I want you to hear what I have to say. So keep that in mind as we go along. I would argue the author is Peter. Notice the first three words of the letter from Simon Peter. The author tells us this is who he is. Later in chapter one, he'll tell you that he was a eyewitness to the transfiguration when Jesus appeared in all his glory on that mount. He tells us, look at chapter 3, verse 1. Just flip over, 2 Peter 3, 1. Notice what he says here. He says, dear friends, this is already the second letter I've written to you. So I would argue the first letter was 1 Peter. This is the second. And he tells us that he's on, he, puts, he places himself on par with the apostle Paul later in chapter 3, Verse 15, he says, Our beloved brother also stated these things to you. And that's significant. He says, I, I'm right there with him. And so there's this apostolic authority. What's also interesting, if you compare Peter's sermons and Acts, they read a whole lot like Second Peter. There's numerous connections which would indicate it's the same author. And then the early church also ascribed this letter to Second or to to Peter. So I would argue our author is Peter. Why is he writing? What's the occasion, the date? That's there there in your notes if you're following along. Well, as I mentioned, death is imminent. Look at chapter 1 of 2 Peter 1.13. He says, Indeed, as long as I am in this tabernacle, referring to his body, I consider it right to stir up uh, you by the way of reminder, since I know that my tabernacle will soon be removed. He's not referring to the Boy Scout tent that's going to be taken and put back into the bag. No, 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 no. He's saying, I'm about to die. And so I have a few things that are, are very important that I highlight to you. Since Peter's martyrdom, his execution under Nero happened in AD 67, we know that it has to be written prior to that time frame. We also know, based on 1 Peter, who our audience is, and if you turn back to 1 Peter, sorry we're doing the sword drill today here, but 1 Peter, just look at this. 1 Peter 1, 1, it says, to those temporarily residing abroad. And then he lists these places, Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. This is all modern Turkey. And so these believers are scattered, most of them exiled, it would appear, for the cause of Christ, 
and he's writing to them that are scattered in this region. But there's a vast difference between 1 Peter and 2 Peter. If you remember 1 Peter, the church was suffering, but it was from outside. Remember this? They're, they're being persecuted by insults that were being hurled, etc. Names were being given. In 2 Peter, now it's inside the camp. There's real grave danger for the church. Peter has seen this progression where the persecution is now with inside. In fact, the worst part is they now have false teachers in their midst. And according to 2 Peter 2, the followers are great. In other words, they're making great inroads within the church. And Peter is gravely concerned now, we need to know a few things about the heretical teachers. So let me give you some characteristics that we see in the letter. Again, we're putting pieces, bits and pieces together based on what Peter is stating. But this is invaluable as we go to this letter. So let me give you some characteristics. Number one, these false teachers are skeptical of prophecy. These teachers applaud doubt. They, they say, we, we, we can't be dogmatic and they love uncertainty. Now, if, if you've got a keen antenna up, you're going to say, boy, that sounds very familiar. I would argue you are correct. That is the day we're in, a post-postmodern world where we can't know anything with certainty. Satan has been moving the goalpost all along. In the late 1800s, early 1900s, you denied inerrancy. Things, there was fallacies. Then we moved to inspiration. And now it's the knowability of the text. Well, you can't know these things. You say, oh, that can't be. Well, I taught at a Christian school, and I had students saying, I can't know that Jesus rose from the dead. And you go, where did you get that idea? Well, they gleaned that from some wonderful postmodern teachers. And that's what is happening here in the, Peter's environment. His, he understands that the readers are faced with some false teachers that are skeptical of dogmatism, Secondly, they deny future judgment. In fact, we're going to see in this letter, they're trying to strip what they believe are embarrassing things of Christianity to the world in which they live. And, and part of that is eschatology, the study of end times. So we'll just remove that so that this message is more palatable. After a while, you can't recognize the message. And that's the problem. Also, if we look at the false teachers, they applaud freedom and hold to a truth set determined by each person for himself or herself. In other words, truth is infinitely palatable and ultimately unknowable in objective sense, similar to point one. And finally, what about these false teachers? They endorse a lifestyle that fulfills personal desires while wearing a cloak of religiosity. Shouldn't surprise us. If you can't know anything, if there's no anchor that's holding this down, then we're in trouble. Right? <laughs> no wonder, you know, they would embrace such things. These teachers have redefined right and wrong in terms of subjective feelings and personal experiences. These are our false teachers. They're not outside. Because we're going to see in Peter, we're going to see in our study of Jude, no, 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 no. They're sitting at the table. They're there. And the, the dangerous part is 
They are wooing many. The, the people are embracing. In fact, look at, look at 2 Peter 2. Notice what he says in verse 2. 2 Peter 2, 2, he says, And many will follow their debauched lifestyles. There's, there's no anchor. And in fact, they're applauding that there's no anchor. And consequently, many are coming to it and embracing the teaching. So now you can see why Peter feels at this point of which he's about to face death, I have to get a letter to these believers that are scattered throughout Turkey. He's gravely concerned. In fact, if you lay out the New Testament letters, uh, not uh, canonically, but chronologically, all right, you look at them in time frame, you will see a progression of where the church is attacked from the outside and uh, the Judaizers, the, those that want to say that there's elements of Judaism that needs to be embraced. But as you move through the New Testament, all of a sudden we see these false teachers starting to pop up. And, and, and they're in infiltrating the church. First John will talk about it, Jude does, and certainly here in Second Peter. Well, let's lay out the book. And this diagram, is, I'm sorry it's so small, you'll need a microfish machine to see it on your notes. But nonetheless, it's there. Uh, you get the opening in the first two verses and the closing. This is typical of letters. And then you have the body, which is the main content of the letter. And that's where we're going to explore not only the call for spirituality, but where Peter will spend a lot of his time addressing the false teachers. So that's our journey through the book, and we'll be done in 2028. It'll be lovely. And so fasten your seatbelts, right? Thank you for the diagram. You can move next to the next. Uh, there's some themes that I want to highlight in this book as we journey through it. No doubt, if you ask what is the overarching theme, it's to grow in the knowledge of Christ. But this epistle cautions about the danger of deviating from one's faith. One's theology, I would argue, goes directly in hand with one's ethics. In fact, I used to have a professor who said, morality is no higher than one's theology. <laughs> the church, remember, it's being tacked from within, not outside. And you've got a group of yahoos are playing with theology. They're playing foot and uh, fancy free. They're, they're, they're twisting it just a little. Peter says, careful. You don't deviate from your faith. Secondly, this epistle warns of impending judgment that awaits humanity. Contrary to the false teachers that are poo-pooing that there's any future judgment, Peter says, no, 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 it's coming. That, that's good news for the believer in the sense of vindication, but it's also a warning. Don't play with the Lord. <laughs> he will judge. He is going to come back just as he did the first time. And then third, this epistle exalts the value of truth, both in doctrine, which we call orthodoxy, and in practice, orthopraxy. The overarching theme, which is to grow in one's knowledge, is not just head, it's also heart. They go hand in hand, and hopefully we will see that as we journey through this epistle. Well, let's get to the text, shall we? Verses 1 and 2 today. It says, from Simeon, or Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have been granted a faith just as precious as ours. 
May grace and peace be lavished on you as you grow. Here it is. In the rich knowledge. It will, this book begins with that call. It will end with that call of God and of Jesus our Lord. So we see the first opening here. It's from Simon Peter. Simon was the most popular Palestinian name in the first century. It's like John today. Everyone called Simon, right? Uh, it was a Greek name, but it, it originated, I should say, from Simeon, one of uh, Joseph's sons back in Genesis 29. What's more significant is that he uses, I think, that he uses the term Peter. Peter, remember, is the name that the Lord gave him. He didn't, this isn't one that his mommy gave him, it's what the Lord did because of his commitment, his confession. The name speaks of blessing, I think. It shows God's sovereignty and grace in this fisherman from Galilee called Peter. And so this is what we have. Simon Peter. Now, what's, I think, more significant is how he identifies himself. Notice what he says, I am a slave. That term is missing in 1 Peter in the opening. In 1 Peter, he says, I'm an apostle, and he goes right into the letter. This one, he starts by saying, I'm a slave. Now, it's not uncommon. Nehemiah, in our study of Nehemiah, he called himself a slave. Paul will refer to himself as a slave in Romans 1, Philippians 1. James 1 will also refer to himself as a slave, and so will the book of Revelation, John. It's said of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, and Job. They're all called servants or slaves of God. And why? Because in the Old Testament, the term meant someone who enjoyed a, a, a special, honored relationship with the Lord. I'm his slave. I'm the Lord's slave. And the good news is, according to 1 Corinthians 7, all believers are referred to as what? The slaves of the Lord. That's the joy we have, the title. And, and Peter's highlighting this. And I think part of it is, is he's, he's going he's to pull out a two-by-four and kind of hit him upside the head. That's what he's going to do with this letter, in my opinion. And so he's kind of softening the pedal a little bit, saying, hey, I'm one of you. I'm a slave of Christ. I'm here to serve, but I'm also an apostle. And he's not afraid to say that, as we see here in the second identifier. It highlights his authority which is very important because as he speaks, he's going to counteract the false teachers. You say, who are they? I'm an apostle. They're not. So you need to listen to the traditions that I bring to you. And so that's significant. So the slave draws attention to the ministerial role of Peter and the apostle underlies his authoritative commission. As we've already noted, the audience is the same as 1 Peter. So this is the second letter they've received. Probably, we don't know, within a couple years, time span. I know one of the questions is, well, how, how did they get this letter to all these churches? They didn't have a Xerox machine. Uh, it wasn't sent via email. Well, you would have had a later letter that is circulated. Someone would deliver it to this church, and you can imagine. You got a letter from Peter? Let's hear it. And then others say, let me copy that down, and we'll circulate that to the next church. And so this is the kind of thing that you would see. Well, notice what Peter says. To those through the, the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, we've been granted a faith just as precious as ours. He says, you have a faith that's just like ours. Of course, the question is, who is ours? 
<laughs> Who's he talking about? Is he, is he talking, as some would argue, what Peter's referring to as we as Jews? You Gentiles have a faith like ours. It's possible. But I think the context is clear. He's talking about the apostolic tradition. Just as we, who were eyewitnesses to Christ, heard the message, saw the resurrected Christ, you enjoy the same kind of faith that we do. And I think basis for that is, number one, there's no Jewish-Gentile tension in the letter. And secondly, the first-person plural is used when referring to being an eyewitness later in chapter 1, and he's referring to the apostles. We did these, we saw these things. And so I would argue what Peter is highlighting is the faith that they have is not inferior to the apostles. And by the way, that could be said of us today. Those who've placed your faith in Christ, it's just as precious as that which the apostles experienced. Notice what else he's saying here in this opening verse. The sovereignty and grace of God is found in their relationship to their salvation. It's highlighted by using the passive voice. In other words, it's God-given. It's not something they obtained through the righteousness of our God. You've been granted. You didn't obtain it. You didn't earn it. You were granted it by God. And that faith that is equally valued by God is a faith that leads to salvation. There's only one faith, not a multitude. There are no artificial human divisions or distinctions. No matter the power, social status, wealth, position, all these things are utterly irrelevant. There's only one faith. And Peter indicates that their faith is accomplished, notice this, through the righteousness of God. That normally, the term righteousness refers to the act by which God puts sinners right. He's been declared. 2 Corinthians 5 says, if we've placed our faith in the Lord, that Christ's righteousness has been reckoned, given to our account, so that when God sees a believer, he sees the righteousness of Christ. Notice then what he says here, through the righteousness, and don't miss this, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The grammatical construction of this phrase is very, very explicit. In fact, it's one of the highest, what we call Christological titles in the entire New Testament. What he's saying here is that God and Jesus are the same. You say, oh, what, what, what do you mean by that? Well, it's very explicit. Uh, the construction isn't the God and the Savior. It's what we call in Greek a Granville Sharp rule. In other words, it's equating the two subjects when you have a the subject, an and, and the subject. In other words, God and Savior are one, and that is namely, the text tells us, Jesus Christ. It's very significant. Jesus isn't an offspring of God. He's not some glorified man, though he is man. No, no, no. He's God. And Peter launches right into this letter where he's going to have to combat those false teachers. And he says, look who Jesus is. He is our God. And he uses the word Savior, which we'll get to in a minute. It's so significant. I love it. Why? Why would Peter have such a what we call high Christology. This is where some liberal scholars will say, ah, there you go. This couldn't have been written in the first century. There's no way a follower of Jesus would have equated him with God. Oh, yes, he would have. 
Why? Because I wrote down just a few. Peter saw Jesus heal his mother-in-law. He saw Jesus walk on water. He, 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 he witnessed the raising of Lazarus in the presence of the glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. He emptied the, entered the empty tomb. He ate with the resurrected Jesus. But more significantly, he heard Jesus say, I and the Father are one. Jesus made no bones about it. I am God. And the religious rulers got it because what did they want to do? They wanted to stone him for blasphemy. So they understood what he was saying, and so did the disciples. And Peter starts off in this glorious statement in the righteousness of Jesus, who is our Savior, and he is our God. Now the phrase Savior, the term, is striking. It occurs five times in 2 Peter. And you say, well, that's, that's nice. Yeah, but it only occurs 11 times in the entire New Testament. In other words, Savior is a major theme in this letter. It's essential to the characteristic of the book. This term not only refers back to salvation, but the role the Lord plays in the life of the believer. Not only now, in the present, in the past, present, but also in the future. And so you're going to see that term as we journey through this book. Don't miss it. You know, the, the openings to letters in the New Testament, a lot of times we kind of do a quick read so we can get to the juicy stuff. Don't, don't miss this. He's, the writer's putting up all these road signs. He's, he's letting you know, this is where we're headed in this letter. It might be subtle, but it's there. Uh, in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about you who are sanctified, you are, you are who holy. Well, they're, they're far from holy. He's going to get there. He was setting the, the, the stage. Peter's doing the same thing here. He says, we serve a great Savior, and he is God. And contrary to what the false teachers are saying about this Jesus or what Jesus will do, no, no, you can trust him. Well, then he moves here into verse 2. He says, May grace and peace be lavished on you as you grow in the rich knowledge of God. Hmm. Typical of other New Testament writings, 13 to be exact, grace and peace are, are delivered at the very opening of the letter. And here, Peter is no different as he did in 1 Peter. He calls for grace and peace to be lavished on them. It's exactly what they need. They're, they're, they're struggling as a church. They've been attacked from the outside. Now they got trouble on the inside. Peace, that's what they need. Grace in dealing with all of these things that are happening are so vital. And you ask, well, well how do you grow in that? He tells us. May they be lavished on you as this is how they come, by growing in the knowledge of our Lord. As I said, this term is vital. It bookends the entire letter. See it in chapter 1, you see it at the end. Thirteen times in this letter, there will be a call to grow in knowledge. Again, the prayer for knowledge is both a call to recognize God's saving work, but a need to grow in it. One commentator summarizes it well. The knowledge in question is no doubt both a theoretical acknowledgement and a personal knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. The reason for our author's emphasis on the fundamental Christian conversion knowledge and its ethical implications is because of the danger of apostasy, meaning to fall away. In other words, the danger of the false teachers who are not only giving us a different message, but they're giving a license to sin. And he said, careful. 
The church is under attack. I didn't need to tell you that. And like the audience of 2 Peter, it's not just from outside, it's also from within. Big C here I'm referring to. It's one of Satan's most effective tools. It was effective in the first century. It's effective in 2023. Why? He would love nothing more than gangrene to develop within the body with the hopes that it will take the whole host before he's done. Thankfully, Big C is the bride of Christ. And the Lord preserves it. But the dangers are great. And this letter is going to call for knowledge in the application in your notes, the problems believers are facing again and 2,000 years ago, I would argue, is the same for today. We seek a revival in this country, but I would argue in order for that to happen, we have to concentrate on the church, not the world. As followers of Jesus, we need to be careful to avoid such a sterile faith, a faith that is all head knowledge with no emotion, and not only a sterile faith, faith must we avoid, but also an ignorant faith. That is a faith that lacks substance, and it's based primarily on feelings. What are we commanded to know or to do? What does the scripture say? We're to love the Lord with all our hearts, all our minds, and with all our strength. And so in your notes, I had two prongs to this call to know. There's an importance of intellectual understanding. Again, not only is understanding vital and knowing the Lord and, and how to glorify Him, but spiritual insight is vital in gauging our pluralistic society. Sadly, we are no longer primarily chaplains to a Christianized culture or merely custodians of doctrine. We must know exactly where we stand and whom we believe. If you've been watching the news, you've seen the horrific destruction from the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. Now they're saying almost 30,000 people have died. It's just mind-boggling. And you look at those buildings, those high-rises that have looked like pancakes that have come down, and you realize th there was no true foundation built to withstand and I thought about the church. When adversity hits the church, or believers in particular, if there's no theological foundation that is rooted well, when those challenges come, the church is in trouble, or individuals are in trouble. Faith is shaken to the point where it could bring down the whole edifice. We cannot engage the world with truth if we do not know it. And Peter is screaming this to a group of believers. He says, you have to know the truth. Otherwise, the counterfeits are going to come and you're, you're going to be swept away with it. D.A. Carson, in his book, God and Culture, makes this statement. In short, we must deal with massively clashing worldviews. And part of our responsibility is to explain competing worldviews from our advantage point. We cannot possibly engage at the level unless we ourselves have thoroughly grasped the biblical storyline and its entailed theology. I mean, think about the implications just in First Peter, excuse me, Second Peter 1 and 2. 
First, this knowledge is not subject to changing times. I love that Peter says, your faith is just as valuable as, valuable as our faith. Because what it tells us is that the gospel cannot and must not be repackaged to accommodate culture. While we as missionaries desire, and we all are missionaries, right? You sang the song in Sunday school growing up, be a missionary every day, right? It's our desire to reach our neighbor, our world for Christ, but to remove, and, and certainly we want to remove obstacles to faith, but careful, there can be no muting, denying, or equivocating on anything that the Bible teaches. This week I was sent this article and it, it just jumped right out at me because I was like, yes, the, we, we are approaching a more subtle and I would argue an, an ever popular approach in the church and that is to make certain topics such as sexuality a non-issue for fear we will lose the next generation. And the author makes this comment, it's dynamite. Maybe instead we should fear we've already lost the generation sitting in our churches. Oh, ouch. He says, he goes on, who know nothing of denying self and taking up the cross. That's what we need. Yes, that's an unacceptable lifestyle. We love you, we, we hurt for you, but the call for you is just as well as every sin that's out there is deny ourselves and take up our cross. We don't bury our head in the sand and, and, and try to strip Christianity of things that just aren't really palatable to a world we live in. That was the problem with the false teachers in Second Peter. For them, it was all this judgment coming and Jesus returning. No, 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 no. That, that, you know, let's, let's get rid of that. It just doesn't fit. And Peter says, don't you dare do that. You got to know the truth. You got to stand in the truth. And so the knowledge is not subject to changing times. Secondly, Christ, and I love this, is the center of all truth, and there is no gospel apart from him. Colossians 2, 3, in whom are hidden, speaking of Christ, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In other words, it's a personal knowledge. Isn't that great? If you do not know Christ, then, then you lack the righteousness, the grace, the peace that Peter is addressing. It starts with Christ. It ends with Christ. It is our end all. And he is the center of all truth. Third, we can know truth. Otherwise, we have a pretty sadistic God who's going to hold people accountable for all eternity. If you couldn't really know it, then I guess he was playing games. Now, Paul well, Peter will say of Paul's writings, even in this letter, some of it, it's hard to understand. There's, there's no doubt. Our culture, our finiteness, our depravity affects our understanding of knowledge. But may we not forget this here is the word of God. May we not forget the power of the Spirit. And that is why in Acts 2, when Peter is preaching, he says, he calls for them to know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. We can know, and we're held accountable for it. 1 John 3, and by this we will know that we are from the truth, and we will reassure our hearts before him. To know, it's to be convinced. It's to be assured of the things that we read of here. And Peter says to the church, 
you're held accountable. You need to know these things. Notice what else he says here, by the way. He says, as you grow in the rich knowledge, which tells us what? It's an ongoing process. I had the privilege when I studied in Tübingen, Germany, under Otto Betz. He was in his early 80s. He was translating the Talmud, the Jewish writings, 30-some volumes, from Aramaic to Greek for fun. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> he loved the Lord. He loved the scriptures. He was a student of the word. And I remember sitting and we were looking at a passage in Malachi and he says, there is so much here I just don't know. <laughs> I about fell out of my chair. We have the responsibility as we, we learn these things to know, hey, there's, there's so much room for growth. So much more that we need to know. Greater knowledge of God and of Jesus, I will argue, will make you extremely humble and leave you in awe. It's the arrogant fool who says, nope, I know these things. Those are the students I have great prayer times for. <laughs> They're the ones that I'm scared about. We don't sit above the text. We sit under the text. It is so key here. The pursuit of knowledge is an ongoing process. And finally, knowledge that carries an obligation. It's been graciously given. I love how the rendering here in the Net Bible, this rich knowledge, it's been lavished on us. It's a legacy that apostles have talked about and brought to us. And thus there's accountability. <clears throat> you don't need to be a Hebrew scholar. You don't need to be able to, to read the New Testament in Greek. But you are expected to study the word and to know the word. It, it's what's going to keep us anchored in the midst of, the, of what's coming through the church. Johannes Albrecht Bingel, German scholar from the 1700s, states, apply yourself totally to the text, that is the Bible, and apply the text totally to yourself. So what are we doing to foster growth and knowledge of the word? Now, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir. You all are very good students of the word, and I applaud that. I'm, I'm uh, spoiled to have such a congregation. Keep it up. Well, let me just ask a few. Are you participating in a Bible study in person or online? Perhaps it's a, one of your desires to learn how to study the Bible better. There's a great book. It's entitled Living by the Book. Living by the Book by Howard Hendricks. He lays out just some basic skills how to study the Bible. It's dynamite. You got the fighter verses in your bulletin. Are you memorizing those? What about Sunday school? We've been blessed this term to have Old Testament survey and Romans. And we have a whole another batch of classes coming up on the 26th. Take note of those. Maybe it's reading a commentary on one of the books of the Bible or an introduction to theology. You say, well, I don't know where to begin. Well, then talk to one of your elders or see me. I'll be happy to share. Or you need to read, just sit down and read a book of the Bible. And you say, well, I, I don't know where to start. Well, why don't you start with the Gospel of John or maybe Second Peter since that's the book we're studying. But we need to be in the Word. <clears throat> then... If you need an object lesson or an illustration, just think of the, what's happened in Turkey and Syria. No strong foundation, and the church desperately needs it. 
There's also a, a call not only cognitively but effectively, and that is the importance of living out the truth. If knowledge is relegated to being merely an academic exercise, then, then we've missed it all. My advisor during my doctoral program, she could keep up in Greek better than most. She knew it inside and out, but she did not know Jesus as her Savior. New Testament scholar. And I've known folks who read the Bible through every year. And you wouldn't know it <laughs> by the way they act. It's got to affect the heart. And th this is the problem with Bible study. So often it begins with interpretation and it ends with interpretation. It needs to start with observation, move to interpretation, and it has to end with application. It's got to affect our lives. Truth that is gleaned must not remain in the cognitive realm, but rather it must be consumed and lived out in our lives. In other words, learning is dynamic. It's not isolated from the rest of life. We must take an active role in seeing all of God's truth incorporated in our everyday life. The Word of God should be oozing out of our pores. Whether you work in an office, whether you're a doctor, whether you're an engineer, it all should be filtered through Scripture. Not just you're a Christian so you pray before you go to work. No, no, no. You are filtering all of that through the Word of God. There are more Bible studies on the north side of Indianapolis than you can shake a stick at. <laughs> We've got tools that previous generations would love to have when it comes to studying the Bible. But if all of this is for intellectual gain, and only that, then it's, it might as well have not been used at all. Take an inventory. Identify a study you're currently attending. Is it impacting your behavior? If not, then take a step back and ask why. Again, if, if you're reading the Bible, Lord, guide me as I read this text today. And then when you're done, Lord, what is it that I can walk away with after having read it? In your notes, Douglas Moo makes this statement, knowing God does not mean having a warm, intimate relationship with our Creator. Or it does mean, excuse me. It also means an understanding of who He is. With all its implications, the biblical writers demand a knowledge of God, here it is, that unites head and heart. And so hopefully this morning, this was a bit of an overview as we go into the text, be thinking of the themes that we've discussed the warnings of the false teachers, but this call to know, because it's going to govern us as we spend the next several weeks dealing with this glorious letter pinned, nestled in the latter part of the New Testament. Father, it is our desire to know you. Paul talks about that, <laughs> to know you and the power of the resurrection to grow in our walk with you. And Lord, it's our prayer that it's not just for head knowledge's sake, but Lord, it, it connects with the heart. It affects our behavior and our, our love for you and our love for others. Thank you for this little letter nestled there in the latter part of the New Testament. 
a letter that has great relevance for us living in 2023. And so, Father, as we have launched this journey, Lord, we pray that our lives will not be the same because of our study of it. In Jesus' name.